Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey, Jim, and hey, everybody to listening. Now, I came across an article that was recently released by Christianity, Christianity Today, and it was titled, um, Worship Music is Emotionally Manipulative. Do You Trust the Leader Plucking the Strings? Well, evidenced by the fact that we're having a conversation about this today, I obviously read it and found it intriguing on many levels. I know, I know, like most people, right, the power that music can have on our emotions. You just think about how particular songs, you know, when you're listening to them, when you're working out, just give you, you know, bursts of energy and motivation. Other times, just a really well-timed ballad can feel like medicine for the soul. And I play piano, and so I know, you know, what's involved in using tempo and volume and chord progression and even dissonance, you know, to really take someone's emotions on a roller coaster. But That said, when it comes to the emotive power of music in worship, I've often found myself treading a little bit more carefully. Like I I remember earlier on when I um, was new to faith, looking around in an auditorium at people worshiping and wondering, are these people actually connecting with God or are they connecting with the music? And to be honest, I still find myself asking that question sometimes. In fact, I actually ask that question of myself at times. But I would say that before reading that CT article, I don't know if I was brave enough to ask the question of whether a worship leader might purposefully manipulate my emotions for some agenda of his or her own. So I want to unpack all of that today with you, Jim. But I guess here's my first question to to kick us off. What does it mean to say that music is manipulative? Well, before we answer that, Okay. We have to ask, what does it mean to say that music is moving? Okay. Uh, because it is. Uh, before you can ask how you can manipulate it, we have to ask what it is that we're manipulating. Mm. Uh, it can move us emotionally. It can shape us theologically. Uh, there have been multiple studies that I've run across that show that worship and music itself is both neurological and is physiological in terms of its impact on us. Something like singing in community together uh, shapes our physical selves as well as our corporate connections. Uh, the, the reformer Martin Luther felt that music was second only to scripture in terms of its power to move and shape the human heart. He was an an excellent hymn writer himself. It's why it's such a powerful tool for worship and why music dominates the expression of worship more than any other artistic form, which means that you can use music to manipulate as well because it does move. Uh, as you already mentioned, songwriters and worship leaders can use such things as, um, as tempo, and they can use modulation to to move people, uh, or to have people fe- at least feel at least feel moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, even something like the slow build to a powerful chorus is in itself that build, that increasing intensity and volume, and adding layer after layer of instrumentation and vocalists uh, is moving, independent of what it is you're even li- is you're saying lyrically, right? Uh, or even the lyrics themselves can manipulate. Uh, such as when we sing about standing up or we sing about lifting our arms. I mean, that's kind of called a cue. 
Uh, it's why you can attend a concert by a very gifted concert performers like Bruce Springsteen or Taylor Swift or uh, U2. And you feel like you've experienced something spiritual. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have felt like, particularly Springsteen, it felt like you just went to a church service. Um, and uh, he was a revival preacher. And he borrows a lot of that language in his lyrics, too, And if you've seen him. There's something that can happen to you through music that just feels transcendent, uh, which is why the author of the article that you mentioned, which I also took time to read when you proposed this, uh, noted that a critical question is whether those who are responsible for worship were trustworthy shepherds and stewards of the experience. We really need our worship leaders to operate uh, as pastors instead of performers, as ministers instead of musicians or merely musicians. It's one of the recent plagues of the church has been people put into pastoral leadership uh, on charisma over character. And then they multiply that mistake tenfold when it comes to the, the creative arts. I mean, if there's one thing in all my years of leadership, if there was one area where the church most often values talent over character, it's with music. And, um, and I, I, I just know, I know of stories. There's so many stories of, for example, a person, let's just say a vocalist, uh, in a good, solid church, you know, just there were issues of sin, issues of ego and pride, but also just other matters where they just said, we just can't platform this person anymore. And they very did it. They did it lovingly. They did it kindly. They did it gently. They did it uh, biblically and trying to, you know, with a view toward restoration and such, but this, there was just enough of a pitfall in this person's life that they couldn't put them forward with integrity on the stage, Yeah, you know, for worship leadership, that person fled the church fled, fled all, uh, uh, you know, you know, aspects to address this. And within two weeks was already being platformed at another church. Mm-hmm. And that church never even bothered to call to say anything and immediately platformed. And because, because there was no doubt this person was wildly talented, mm-hmm. but back to manipulation examples given in the article include having a worship leader who seems more interested in cultivating a particular stage, uh, image than actually serving in a pastoral role or having heavy emotional moments become kind of lead into overtures to fundraising, you know, <laughs> kind of purposeful. Uh, but there's so many ways that this can be abused. There was a, uh, an older documentary, I say older, 2022, there've been several documentaries on Hillsong, but they raise a lot of pivotal questions such as confusing uh, emotional manipulation for a movement of God hmm. uh, or crying because God is truly intervening in your life or crying because the chord structure was built and designed to make you cry. And there's also the manipulation of, as the article states, um, having powerful people at the helm of large churches using powerful music as a way of cultivating personal loyalty and personal devotion, not simply to God, but to their brand and to themselves. Um, and, uh, I remember when I was in college in the communications course, our professor uh, played um, a speech or a rally given by Hitler. And we were talking about somebody, what a, a masterful communicator he was. And, 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 but how music building up to Hitler and mm-hmm. drums, particularly and the use of that and rhythmic and, and moving kind of got people to this openness to where they, that just, and, and were moved. And then, then Hitler would speak and he was brilliant order, but the, the manipulative mu- nature of music was fascinating. I remember to this day that that kind of ex- exposing, but anyway, you like a song uh, from the creative team of a church and you instantly extend something to that church. 
positive. Mm. Um, when in truth, that church's leadership may be a hot moral mess or the leader's teaching more than a bit sketchy. Mm -hmm. uh, the fear of this kind of manipulation that we're talking about isn't helped by the financial scandals of many of these churches producing much of today's music or how big of a business worship music has become. Right. Well, I think it might be helpful if we just, let me just wade into a brief theology of worship. I know there's much that we're not going to be able to get to, but I, I guess my question is like, what is music supposed to achieve in the context of worship? Like in other words, what what constitutes authentic worship? Is it is it meditating on the lyrics? Is it having an emotional response to it? Is it being moved into action of some sort? What do you think? Yes, all okay. three. I knew okay. you were going to say that. <laughs> well, let's back up and look at worship itself. Okay. Um, the word worship is from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worth-sippy or worth-ship, which means that worship is when you bestow worth or honor and respect to someone or something. In the Christian context, it's giving worth, honor, and respect to the living God. When it comes to worship, Jesus taught two things. Because this is a super brief theology of worship. Mm -hmm. But uh, Jesus taught two things, worship in spirit and worship in truth. Uh, to worship in truth means that when we worship God, we worship God as he really is, and not some false idea of God or some substitute for God. True Christian worship rests not only on the act of worship, but on the object of worship. To worship in truth means to worship the only true object for worship, which is God. There are a lot of other objects you can worship, money, fame, a rock, a tree, a false distorted view of God uh, is idolatry. Uh, but that wouldn't be the worship you were created for, much less a worship that would do anything for your life, because only worship in truth, uh, the worship of the one true God as revealed in Scripture, is really worship. There must be a conscious, intelligent, uh, theological dynamic to worship. It's not simply an emotional or an experiential event. It is a cerebral one, which is why the Apostle Paul said, I would rather... Um, have one intelligible word of worship than a thousand words in tongues that I don't understand. Mm. Uh, he was certainly giving priority to this aspect of worshiping in truth. Uh, you're thinking as you worship, and they must be the right thoughts. Your worship when you are thinking rightly about God, I mean, you worship when you are thinking rightly about God and when you are thinking rightly about your relationship with God. Uh, so that's first. Then you say worship in, in spirit. Uh, to worship in spirit is to worship authentically with your heart, to have your act of worship be sincere, genuine, real, authentic. It's a moment when you are met by God and you're led by God. Uh, Jesus said it's not just whom you worship, but it's also how you worship. Uh, how we worship, um, well, that raises a question. How are we supposed to express <laughs> worship in spirit and truth to God? And there's lots of ways that scripture encourages and endorses uh, a lot of variety, a lot of different means uh, with our bodies, uh, through the sacraments, such as the Lord's Supper, through giving, uh, generosity. But let's focus on one that's talked about uh, extensively, which is music. Mm. There's over 40 psalms. I think it's 41, if I remember, but there's over, there's over 40 psalms in the Bible that encourage us to sing, fly out, sing mm. to God. Doesn't matter if you have a good voice, bad voice, sing to God. Uh, to use music, to worship God. You take the words of the song and you make them your words. You use them as a vehicle to express how you feel and what you want to say to God. Uh, and also what you need to say that you may not even realize that you need to say, which is why it's good to have 
good words prepared and given to you and for you, which is why churches should go to great pains in vetting music, not only in terms of singability or catchiness, but lyrical soundness, theological integrity. At Mac, every song we sing, every single one is reviewed pastorally, theologically, biblically, every, every single one. Uh, so that whatever it is that we're singing, whatever words are coming out that we are singing collectively in worship is truly giving God the worship that he deserves and it's shaping and leading people in ways that are appropriate and helpful. And it's helping us as we worship. This, this really isn't something trivial. It, it isn't. Music is woven into the fabric of our being. It's how we were. It's one of the ways that God just wired us up. It's one of the most natural, organic, deeply felt ways human beings express themselves through song, through music, through singing. It's not about, again, whether you have a, it's not about whether you're musically talented. It's not about whether you have a good singing voice. Um, make a joyful noise to the Lord can be just that, a joyful noise, but it's to the <laughs> Lord. And that's what matters. Uh, it's what you know, music and singing allows us to feel, to express, to give. And, um, and, and it says, you know, I mean, the, the, the psalmist writes, one of, the most, one of the more beautiful psalms that comes to mind about music is the hundredth psalm, mm. which which has those classic lines, you know, shout shout to the Lord with joy all to the earth and make a joyful noise unto the Lord and work, you know, all that. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Um, but I remember one of the things that stood out to me about the hundredth psalm was how Eugene Peterson paraphrased it. And we'll have to get this in the show notes so that people can get it right. But it's the, the it's Psalm 100 verse two. And I, I, he, he says something to the effect of sing yourselves into his presence. Mm. And I, I thought that was, that's beautifully put, sing yourselves into his presence. And I, I hope I'm getting his paraphrase right there, but I think we'll, I we'll see in the show notes. Ah. <laughs> well, okay. So, so the CT article that we've been talking about, it was written by Kelsey Kramer McGinnis and she's CT's worship music correspondence, but she, records of a time when she was leading worship at a, at a uh, college conference, I think for students. And so while she was doing that she, in her ear, in, in her in-ear monitor, I can't speak today, um, in her monitor, she was hearing commands, you know, to, to be bigger, to, to raise her hands, to clap more, to, to jump, to be more physically demonstrative. And, you know, as I'm reading that, to be honest, it just kind of makes me cringe a little bit. But I was thinking, well, maybe that's unfair. You know, worship leaders do lead others in worship. And I imagine that leadership sometimes involves, you know, encouraging freedom of expression and and and, and demonstrating ways in which we can use our, our bodies to worship yeah. God. So I'd just be interested in your take on that. Yeah, I remember reading that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I equally cringed. Okay, good. <laughs> um, there's a thin line between coaching a leader on large group leadership. And there are dynamics to leading a large group of people in worship. There are. And some physical dynamics. There are. And there's a difference between that and becoming something staged or performed in the worst kind of ways. I mean, imagine a pastor. Okay, let's just put it in a different context so that we can see it maybe a little more with more clarity. Imagine a pastor giving a message and he has an in-ear monitor too. Mm-hmm. And somebody is saying, oh, you should tear up here. Mm-hmm. Or, or, oh, wave your Bible around right here. Open it, open it up like you're reading it or, or just flap it open so that it has dramatic effect or, or move down away from the podium and, and crouch and kneel and kind of, you know, take a, take a pose or, or, Hey, this is time to raise your voice. Um, there's a cringe factor to that. Yeah. Uh, but what a worship leader is supposed to do is to help us worship, 
facilitate corporate worship, help us know how to worship, teach us, lead us, pastor us. Uh, that's not manipulation. That's being pastoral. Mm -hmm. uh, and that does involve physicality or can. I mentioned that one of the ways that we're meant to worship God is with our bodies. I mean, we're physical creatures and we use our bodies to express ourselves. And that's a natural. Uh, let's say the quarterback of your favorite football team, which if you love Jesus, should be the Carolina Panthers, uh, connects to the tight end for a touchdown to win the game. I mean, you're not, are you going to sit there? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're going to jump up and scream at the top of your lungs and hug the person next to you and pump your fist and shout out loud. I mean, when I watch football with my family and, you know, I step out of the room during a game, I know when something special happens. <laughs> there I goes crazy. Um, it's the natural way to celebrate. And it's a natural way to celebrate God. The more comfortable that you become with worship, the more comfortable I think you become in expressing yourself physically to God in ways that seem natural and appropriate to who you are and how you're feeling. You're not trying to mimic what other people do, what's natural and appropriate for you and how God wired you. I don't mean you do an end zone dance. When it comes to worship, you should never, ever act in a way that draws attention to yourself and away from God. Um, and uh, But when you worship, you should also feel free to be physical. Uh, you might want to kneel, clap, close your eyes, just kind of soak it all in in the moment and maybe raise your hands as a symbol of praise. Your body is a part of who you are and is often essential to expressing yourself in worship, uh, which is interestingly why some people I've talked to like, for example, our online campus for worship better than they do in person. I mean, uh, in the sense that they feel less inhibited. Hmm. They feel like they can sing out loud. They feel like they can raise their hands or do things that they would be more awkward about doing in, in public than uh, than in private. But anyway, uh, and we can talk about all that later if you want. But this is why the Bible talks so about lifting up our hands and spreading out our hands before God in worship. We're physical creatures. We tend to express ourselves physically. Uh, you can do the same when you worship God, and you have the freedom to do that when you worship God. Um I recall, I recall, um, and, and a leader helps us with that. Yeah. A, le a leader helps us engage worship, not simply with our voices, but with our bodies. And, and I recall reading an article where somebody drew the analogy, and so this is not original with me, um, that when a mother smiles, her baby smiles. When a mother frowns, her baby frowns. When her voice softens, her, her baby becomes still, and so on. And the mother is giving these physical cues to the baby in a wonderful, beautiful, helpful, healthy way. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of music and how worship leaders can lead us that way. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm trying to decide if I want to tackle something that you just said or if I'm – I don't – okay, I just – let me just follow up. Okay, so you were talking about how – you're giving the example of like, imagine if it wasn't a worship leader, if it was a pastor having these in-ear kind of cues. And yet, I don't know if I'm going on a rabbit trail here, but I think that's a probably a really great connection to make because I do think that it's not just musicians who contribute to the show sometimes. I, I do think sometimes pastors, maybe not because they are getting an in-ear, you know, command to, you know, do some of the things that you were saying, Um I think that subconsciously they can make that same mistake. Again, I feel like I, sh I need to clarify that I'm not talking about you, Jim. <laughs> I feel like that's probably... If you were, you have every right to raise it. I, <laughs> I, I stand 
you know, but I think you're right. Uh, um, I'm not sure that they aren't abusing this and being more manipulative even more than worship leaders. I think they might even be more guilty of this, or at least mm-hmm. some. Um, there are videos I've seen of pastors, uh, and some of the names would be known, that I, I, I just will have to say I, I find personally revolting. I do. I find it, I find it revolting. Uh, it's such a show. It's such a game. It's such a posturing. It's such a prancing around on stage. It's such a look at me, look at me, look at me, and 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 wanting to be the center of it all. It's such a performance. Um, they're trying to be, I don't know, Chris Rock doing stand up, or or they jump and prance around in a way that is uh, clearly designed to draw attention to themselves, or they beg the crowd to give them applause or response. Like the crowd doesn't respond what they want, and they say, "Oh, come on, come on, give it to me, give it to me," or whatever they say. I don't know. I haven't watched it enough to mimic them perfectly, but you know, they, 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 they beg, they ask, they cajole the audience to respond or give them things or, you know, and this is different than the old church saying, Hey, is it, give me an amen. Sure. You know, where it's just more like, Hey, are you awake out there? (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine, you know, uh, but uh, this is, this is crosses a line beyond that. You know, I've, and I, you know, I've done my fair share of conference speaking and, 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 and still obviously do quite a bit of that. And, and I, I'll tell you when some of the some of the some of the things that I do. Sometimes you'll go into a place and you'll do like a group of speakers will will go, and this is particularly true internationally. And you'll do two or three venues, two or three like two or three days in a row. Where you're putting on the same conference event, and I just need to be honest, uh, and I don't mind saying this because I just find it so uh, bad uh, that when you hear someone give the same talk multiple times. And they cry on cue at the same place every time. Uh, it's obviously not authentic. Mm. It's obviously staged. And I don't like that. I mean, I can I can tell the same story that's an emotional story and I can be fighting something. But I mean, there's just something just uh, just something that can be so inauthentic and, and we can give into it in the name of I don't know in the name of what. But it's it's not it's not a good it's not a good look. Um, there's a difference between a message and a performance. Let's just put it like that between something that tries to manipulate and hype and that which seeks to just simply teach or encourage. If, if you walk away thinking more about the performance of a message and the content of a message about somebody as a great speaker, as opposed to somebody who has great content, mm-hmm. uh, or if it was more like a pep rally than a digging into the scriptures on a particular issue, I think that there's obviously something there that we need to be, um, get better at. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that take. We can get back to worship now, but I did. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. So I want to go back to, the, to something that you were talking about um, because during COVID, certainly we all experienced a, a shift in the way that we worship because for a lot of us, our churches, our in-person services were closed down. And so for those of us who did have online services available, we had to learn, I think, how to worship by ourselves, you know, di- divorced from speakers and lights and just the energy of being in a room with other people. I think for some of us, the worship experience felt a little less exciting. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but yeah, different than when we were in person. You were, I mean, you were in the same boat as the rest of us. So how would you describe that difference? Well, like I just mentioned, for some, it allowed them to be less inhibited. Mm -hmm. It gave them in the privacy, they were able to express themselves more or be more demonstrative and they weren't self-conscious about what people were thinking or feeling and they could just sing out and 
And, you know, they just put it on a big screen TV and cranked it up and they were all alone. They knew the doors were locked and the air conditioning was up and you know, they just <laughs> were into it. So I think it depends. I think some liked it better. And uh, there's a Pew Research survey that just came out on this. And I even did a blog on it, which we can link to in the show notes if people want to get a little more in depth to it. Uh, but they found out this this Pew Research Project this survey found that uh, more than a quarter of Americans regularly watch uh, online campus services, online services. The survey found that most, that's a lot. I mean, that's mm -hmm. of all Americans. When I talk about quarter of Christians, 20% mm -hmm. of all Americans. So you're reaching a lot of people who aren't Christians. The survey found that most Americans who watch religious services uh, on screens are happy with them. The majority are happy with that experience, which I think surprised a lot of people. They just assumed that they weren't. But then again, I don't know why, because that doesn't explain why so many are still doing it even after the pandemic is over. Right. Um, uh, Two-thirds of U.S. adults, and this is really interesting, two-thirds of U.S. adults who regularly stream services online uh, say they are either extremely satisfied or very satisfied with the services they see. And they also feel like participants in the experience. 25% say that they usually feel they are an active participant, and another 42% say that they often feel like they're an active participant. Okay, that's nearly 70% experiencing connection and participation to one degree or another in an online service. And again, this is why it's so interesting because I you hear people say, oh, you can't, they, nobody's connected online or not enjoying it online or it's not as good as, as being in person. And I'm gonna say, well, you know, maybe for you it's not, but you know, just be careful not to project what your experience is onto others or how you would feel onto others, because it's kind of like, you know, someone saying, well, I can't do community. I can't do a meeting with FaceTime. Somebody else says, well, I just had a great one, you know, <laughs> and so it just depends. So, but you got 70% who are saying, uh, uh, everybody watching online, I, it's connecting for me. I'm having an experience for me. Yeah. Um, and now to be sure, those who read the survey will find that people are also happy with their in-person. Those who are primarily in-person are also happy. Mm. You know, so it just goes to show, you know, you've got, you know, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> but that's the point that I've argued for, particularly of late, that um, churches should really embrace a hybrid model. Mm -hmm. And hybrid is here to stay. That when it comes to the physical and the digital, it's not an either or or both and. It's not in-person services or online services. It's, it's a combination of both. And people will vacillate usually between the two uh, off and on on any given week. Hmm. I have a feeling that there might be a handful of people who listen to this conversation, particularly at the beginning when we were talking about ways in which, you know, either worship leaders or pastors can really manipulate crowds and think, well, you know, that's why these big churches are doing it all wrong. You know, it's all a show. It's all, you know, gimmick. It's all contrived. We need to strip down church services from all of the glitz and the glam, you know, the speakers and the lights and everything, and just return to authentic worship. And as I thought about that, I was thinking, I know Jim's going to want to respond to that attitude. So here is your, what have you called it for? Like your um, raw meat. Here's your raw meat. <laughs> Jim, you respond. First thing I want to say is they obviously haven't read the Old Testament and the temple rituals and the massive hundreds and thousands of musicians and everything else. And it's like that was anything but stripped down. Mm -hmm. But I do want to respond to this. Yeah. Uh, we did an entire podcast on critiques of large churches, which, again, we can link to in the show notes, which I thought was a healthy conversation because mm -hmm. there are there are pros and cons. There's good and the bad. Yeah. But I, th I think it was a healthy conversation. We also did a podcast on revivals and particularly what happened at Asbury College and how people 
did exactly what you just said. They rushed to critique the slick productions of large churches with the unplugged, unprofessional style of music that marked the experience of those particular student meetings. And again, we can link to that in the show notes. Um, and that's one of the fun things about what we're doing. We're building a real body, real library of conversations so that we can go chase further with certain ones and refer people to other ones so that we don't spend time regurgitating them. Yeah. But to your framing of how some might feel this way, I would simply say a few cautionary things. First, big is not automatically bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church was birthed as a mega church. I always remind people of that. I have to remind people of that regularly, lest we forget Pentecost. Yeah. 3,000 converts in a single day was the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit could have birthed the church any way he wanted. He chose to birth it as a megachurch. You, you, that is biblically undeniable. Uh, second, we all have, uh, so you can't just say big's bad. Mm-hmm. Second, we all have differing musical tastes. We need to be careful not to make our tastes normative for everyone. Uh, or as I've often counseled my graduate students, be careful not to build theological fences around your personal tastes. And that difference in musical taste extends to differences in preferred styles of worship. And that's fine. Just don't demonize the ones that you don't like as somehow bad or wrong or not authentic or not worshipful. Uh, The Holy Spirit has proven himself pleased to use all types and all kinds, from big to small, from plugged in to acoustic, from choirs and handbells to drums and guitars. Um, So third, don't confuse uh, professionalism and quality with slickness and inauthenticity mm. and superficiality, mm-hmm. uh, much less manipulation. As Christ followers, we are called to excellence. And nowhere should that excellence be more evident than when it comes to leading God's people in worship. Mm-hmm. The people of Israel I alluded to earlier, but let me go ahead and say something else. They had professional musicians, mm-hmm. people set aside, trained for their life, professional musicians. And professional singers and, uh, you know, part of for worship, the leading of worship. And they were set aside for this. Uh, So when a church has that, why is that a bad thing? Right. It's an excellence thing. It's a question of just being excellent. Another thing to remember is that that we're meant to use our spiritual gifts. And somebody says, well, that's just an Old Testament deal. No, it's a New Testament deal. We're given spiritual gifts, and which means teachers teaching and leaders leading and singers singing and musicians playing and songwriters writing songs. I mean, those who are gifted in those areas are meant to use those gifts for the life of the church. And uh, someone says, well, you're only using the good ones. Well, no, we're only using the gifted ones. Because that's what we're supposed to do. I'm not going to have a bad teacher teach a class. I'm not going to have someone who, 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 why would I have someone who can't hold a note sing and try to lead worship when that inability becomes a distraction to the end game of leading worship? Why, why would, why you wouldn't do this? This doesn't make sense. Why would you have someone who's a terribly poor leader be put them in leadership and have the church suffer? No. Yes, they are good at that. Why? They're spiritually gifted. And we're supposed to have everybody use their gifts. Everybody's a 10 somewhere. Everybody's gifted. And we're just trying to get everybody in the right place. And so that's that's not a bad thing. That's that's a good thing. That's a God thing. And it's why I celebrate church teams writing worship music for the church. I think that's a tremendous thing. That's, that's another aspect. I think we need to continue to do that and not feel like the only good music is was, was buried 400 years ago. And somehow God's spirit left the church and no more good music is ever being written. Now, I don't like how right now four or five large churches dominate things, and that's being documented. I don't believe that's healthy, particularly when so many of them embrace a prosperity gospel in their thinking, Mm -hmm. and it comes through the music. 
I find that too many songs have a lyrical emphasis on either God's grace or God's provision. Now, listen, I love God's grace. I love God's provision, but uh, God is, you know, God is obviously the God of both, but it comes across in too much of a name it, claim it kind of way. There's not a lot of talk about salvation. There's not a lot of talk about the cross. Uh, a lot of the lyrics are instead about what God is doing for me or do or can do for me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like the church recapturing the arts and becoming a patron of the arts, which is why we so celebrate the arts here at Mech mm-hmm. and musicians and singers and videographers and dancers and, and songwriters. Uh, all of the arts is, are celebrated here. Painters, everything. Finally, the last thing I guess I would say, and I know I'm giving you more of an answer than you thought, but um, as we're winding this down, let me just get this out. Um, I, I would say that there are, t- there are times to strip things down. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I love about our, uh, you know, about our creative team, and let me just brag about the creative, the Mac creative uh, at, at Mac is, is how much creativity and variety that they bring to worship. Our overall styles, without a doubt, contemporary and would be for many churches edgy. We have a very young creative team. Uh, most are in their twenties. Uh, they're not in their twenties. They're in their prepubescent. <laughs> <laughs> they're young, but it's very eclectic, mm-hmm. and it draws from a lot of different styles. And uh, one week might feature a violin and cello, uh, singing an ancient hymn like "Be Thou My Vision." Another week, big multiple vocalists with powerful moving choruses. Another week, entirely unplugged and acoustic. Um, our team is ethnically diverse, and so you might hear a song and then suddenly the chorus is being sung for us in Spanish mm-hmm. uh, or something stylistically from the historic tradition of the black church. Um, I know that our team despises the inauthentic. They want to bring, I think uh, the word that I think I've heard the music, they want to bring a grit, mm-hmm. have there be grit to the worshiping life of the church, something from the trenches and real. And, and they want to move people to worship God in the best possible sense. And they want to be authentic worshipers themselves and they value character over talent. And I've seen them be ruthless in evaluating and, and, and evaluating character over talent. And it shows, it shows. And I, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and it would show for any church. I hope for those listening, I mean, I think it would be worth it just to rewind this before you, you know, turn it off just to hear Jim unpack again, what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, because I mean, I, as someone who is a believer and who goes to, to Mac Ryan right here, the Mac creative team, I mean, it, it's tempting to just, because they are so talented, just to watch them. So I think like there is a, a personal accountability for every Christian to understand how to worship in truth and, you know, um, in truth and spirit to do that authentically. Um, and then I think once you have that heart and mind, then it's easy to, to bring that to bear with any style of music, just like you were saying. So I felt like that was gold. So I hope people will go back and, and listen to that again. Um, but yeah, so thanks, Jim. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back again next week.